Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. I would have given up my entire bank savings. I would have given up my job. I would have given up all my friends just to be thin. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me, but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. I thought that thinness was going to change my life. I thought it was going to make me happy. I thought most of all, and this was very important, I thought it was going to get me love. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Why can't I get joy from anything? Frequent thing they heard the nursing staff heard was it was it was when they whispered in the, the ear of the patient when they're really doing it tough I reckon you can do this you know I believe you're going to get there the eating disorder cannot be more powerful than you are because you give it its power it's a part of you it took half of my life my eating disorder and it literally nearly took my life but we, we've seen recovery in in kids in teenagers in adults and in the elderly. So there's absolutely uh, hope. There is hope at endend.org.au. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I have the amazing Dr. Erin Parks with me. Erin is a clinical psychologist, researcher, and co-founder of Equip, a virtual eating disorder program that delivers evidence-based treatment for lasting recovery. Erin has over 15 years' experience with adolescents and adults in inpatient, partial hospitalization, and intensive outpatient settings, where she has experienced firsthand the disparity in who gets diagnosed and who has access to quality treatment, which is why she co-founded Equip, to disseminate the treatment that works, not just feels good, to everyone with an eating disorder. Thank you so much for joining me today, Erin. It's so lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me, Millie. I'm excited for this conversation. So let's dive in. I would love to begin with you giving our listeners an insight into your own eating disorder journey. Yes. And it's interesting because I barely remember my own eating disorder journey. And it's fascinating because I think there's many people who are at different stages of their journey that can't imagine almost having amnesia for their journey. But uh, that's where I'm at. So I'm in my 40s now. um, And I first got sick when I was the States here in fifth grade, so about 10 years old. And it was the early 90s, 1990. So before FBT fully invented, before it had made its way to the United States. And I was really fortunate because my mom really great at trusting her gut and she just kind of trusted her gut. So she took us, she took me to a therapist, a dietitian, and to a psychiatrist. And in all three of those settings, she was really excluded from participating. Um, And I think the dietitian conversation was one of the funniest. She did get to come in for part of the session and they asked me, you know, what is it that you like to eat? And and I'm like, well, I like to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and hot chocolate and my mom's chocolate chip cookies. And so I think partially being 10, my anorexia was a bit ARFID-like and I just was not eating enough and was failing to continue to gain weight as I grew. And the dietitian suggested to my mom, like, I think she needs to be eating more fruits and vegetables. My mom's like, she's not going to be able to restore weight on fruits and vegetables. We are leaving here. And that was the last time we saw saw the dietitian. And this is, it was a different time, less information was around. And so what my mom did was she started taking over control of my breakfast, lunch, and dinner and my snacks. She brought lots and lots of games. I remember this is before phones, this is before iPads. There was no, we didn't have TV anywhere near where we could see it. It was in a different room. It was in the family room before open concept homes even. So she would bring all these games to the kitchen table and brought a lot of trivia games. So my brother and I, my little brother and I were pretty competitive with each other. And so he'd read me trivia questions to kind of distract me while I ate. And I, I recovered. I, I I really didn't remember it. So fast forward, I'm 30 years old, or I guess older than 30 years old. And I fell into working at the UC San Diego Eating Disorder Center, being a fellow there to complete my training, my postdoctoral training, so it's after you get your degree. And I really had never had an intention of going to work in the eating disorder field and didn't really have a, a huge recollection of my eating disorder journey being particularly meaningful for me. Fast forward another you know, decade plus in the eating disorder field, and my father had just moved, and his wife had asked us to kind of like help clean all of our childhood 
stuff up because we had a lot of stuff that we left there as, as many kids do as they grow into adults and just kind of leave all the junk at their parents' house. And I was going through this bin of paperwork and I found a paper that I wrote junior year of high school. So I was probably, what, 16 years old. And the topic was, what are you most proud of? And I wrote, I'm most proud of recovering from my eating disorder. And I have no recollection of writing this paper, no recollection of even feeling that pride since I really just kind of had blocked it out and forgot about the whole journey. And it's a bit serendipitous that this is where I ended up. And I have since thanked and apologized to my mother. I'm like, mom, like what you did has a name now. It's called like FBT. It's called, you know, Modsley. It's how we now encourage people to bring a loved one, doesn't have to be a parent to help someone recover. So that's kind of a little glimpse into my journey. It's so special that something that you can barely remember has had such a fundamental impact on the direction of your life. It's fascinating. Like I must at like some cellular level have remembered more than I realized. Um, but yeah, and here I am. And it's something that I did not talk about for probably the first 10 years that I was working in the eating disorder field. I told one or two people where I worked. I think that's also one of the differences with academia and not academia. In academia, people really don't talk about their eating disorder lived experience in the same way that I feel like it's talked about maybe in the advocacy space, the nonprofit space, and even the for-profit treating treatment center spaces where it's the lived experiences often more celebrated. It was interesting and it's been uh, a journey getting comfortable with talking about it now after having not talked about it for so long. But I'm fortunate that my co-founder, Christina Safran, who has a lot of experience talking about her eating disorder, I've got her kind of cheering me on and, and showing me the way. Why do you think uh, that it isn't spoken about as much in academia? I think that it's stigmatized. You know, not original thoughts. I know that sometimes this gets brought up as you know, our annual conferences, but this idea that our expertise in some ways is a little bit less so if you had an eating disorder, so you became obsessed with it, and then you became an eating disorder therapist, now you treat eating disorders. I don't know if there's like a fear that people will do end of one treatment. This is what worked for me. So this is what I'm going to give to other people. That might be part of it, but I think it's also just stigmatized. It's probably the same reason why I went to school for like, I don't know what, eight years to be a psychologist and got zero hours of eating disorder training until I arrived at my fellowship. I think the same thing is true of most physicians, psychiatrists, therapists who get other types of degrees. We don't learn about eating disorders. It's an area where we really still blame the people who are sick. We still think about it as an illness of vanity, even though we logically know better. That's just one of the things that gets in the way of people talking about it. And I did ask a few people at the, you know, as I had been there for a while, like, do you think I should share about this? And they're like, no, probably not. And so I didn't. What do you believe were the key factors that helped you to gain freedom from your eating disorder? I think one of the number one was weight restoration. And it's something that I got to experience again later in life. So after the birth of my second child, I ended up in a pretty deep depression, probably like six plus months after he was born, really peaking when he turned about a year, year and a half. And also at that time, my weight was quite low. But now I'm working in the field of eating disorders. And so while I did not intentionally lose weight, every single day I was saying things like, just the act of being underweight increases depression and increases anxiety. So I sat down with my husband and I said, I need to gain weight. Like, I need to get out of this depression. And I'm sure the depression isn't exclusively caused by my weight, but we know that just the act of being underweight can make it worse. So, so let's do it. And as a you know, 10, 11 year old and in my mid 30s, the act of gaining weight significantly improved my depression and my anxiety. So I really think that was the number one thing for my journey is restoring enough weight, not just settling for kind of good enough till my emotional symptoms really went away. I think another thing that's really helped me later in life is I do take Zoloft and I'm a little bit evangelical about it, that if you need medication to help control your anxiety or depression, to definitely do that. And I think it, there can be a cyclical nature between anxiety and eating disorders or depression and eating disorders. And so by keeping one thing treated, keeps everything treated. And then I think the last thing that really was essential and that helped was my family. They were all focused on helping me to restore weight. And they spent very, very little time being like, why are you doing this to yourself? How did this happen? It was more present focused. And I'm someone who, 
I mean, I think like a lot of people who go into this field or, or have eating disorders can be almost too cerebral, too stuck in your head to the point where you end up paralyzed. So I think that having a family that really approached it in the present moment and didn't make me get too in my head about it really helped me as well. Now, I first met you when I came to California on my little research mission when we were in the initial stages of realising our dream of establishing Australia's first residential eating disorders facility. I visited you at UC San Diego uh, where you were working with the amazing Dr. Walter Kay. Now, the Eating Disorders Centre there is so unique that people travel from all over the world to get treatment there. I know people in both Australia and New Zealand who credit the program for making the difference in their recovery. You co-led this special program. What do you believe makes it so different to what else is on offer in terms of eating disorder treatment? Yes, I am forever grateful that I got to both train at UC San Diego and then stay there for so much of my career. The things that I credit with what made UC San Diego and still makes it so different than other treatment centers is one, the multidisciplinary approach. So oftentimes there might be other centers that say they're multidisciplinary, but the psychiatrist spends 20% of their time in the eating disorder center and 20% of the time in the anxiety center and 30% of the time over here in this hospital. That's not what it was is like or is like at UC San Diego. The entire team is there every day living and breathing treatment. The dietitians, the therapists, the medical physicians, and the psychiatrists all together. This was their full-time focus. I think another thing that makes it kind of magical there is many people have been there for a really long time and were instrumental in building the program. And so there was this inherent trust your village of just, I just knew what this dietitian was doing in session. I just knew that this is what the psychiatrist was saying. We were all like reading from the same book on the same page. And so when we were working with families, they were getting the same message reinforced again and again and again. And when you're treating families, they're human beings. And even if you're not in crisis, even when you're perfectly healthy, you're only going to remember about 20% of what anybody says, Right. But if you throw on top of that an eating disorder and anxiety and the chaos and craziness of life when you're trying to get through an eating disorder, you don't take very much in. It's hard and there's a lot to learn. So having all of your providers be on the same page, telling you the same thing session after session, group after group, really allows for this reinforcement of what needs to be done. They also do an outstanding job of keeping the focus on the eating disorder. It's one of my favorite stories that they had this family. And I think you're kind of referencing our one week intensive that we did. And people would travel for one week and stay with us to get intensive treatment. Mm -hmm. This one family, we made a list of things like, what would you like your child to work on? Well, I'd like them to, you know, stop purging and stop vomiting. I also want them to stop swearing in front of their little brother. And I also want them to do better in school. And I all, and the, the list goes on and on. And I think that's normal in a lot of homes that, you know, they're teenagers or their children or their young adults who have a lot of things that they're working on. And at UC San Diego, we keep everybody focused on what is most urgent, which is normalizing eating patterns, increasing variety and weight restoration. It's such a special, special program. And I know that it needs to be replicated around. I'm surprised that it hasn't been replicated around the world. I am as well. I absolutely love the program and leaving was probably one of the hardest career decisions that I ever made. And I remember when I first started, so not just Dr. K, but Dr. Terry Schwartz and Leslie Anderson and Roxanne Rockwell and, and so many people who work there are constantly giving like talks and writing papers and telling people, this is what we do. This is what we do. This is what we do. And I remember saying to Walt, I'm like, don't you think we're going to kind of like teach ourselves out of a job that, you know, everyone's going to be doing what we're doing. And he's like, kind of that's the hope. Like, mm. how can we get more great treatment out there? And so that's really in many ways, what led to Equip is him constantly reminding me that we need to get more great treatment out there. Mm. And knowing that so many people were spending a lot of money and also, and more importantly, a lot of time in treatment that might've felt good, but not treatment that worked. And I think we've all met patients who've spent years and years and years in treatment, maybe talking about how to get motivated or talking about how to like their body or talking about where did the eating disorder come from, but not actually doing the work of normalizing their eating patterns, stopping a binge purge cycle, restoring weight. 
And if we aren't working on those behaviors, you can talk as much as you want and then you can just tread water forever. Anyway, so I think like in, in many ways it ends up being kind of the birthplace of Equip is being surrounded by mentors who are like, we need to help more people. We need to do better. Yeah, and I, I love how you talk about, you know, the treatment that works, not just treatment that feels good because there were many, many, many years of me going to therapy and yeah, it's all very well for it to feel good, but come on, let's actually make some sustained progress. Always really admired the way that the center at UCSD is so passionate about including families and lived experience in such a meaningful way, because I think that's something that's not effectively executed in so many eating disorder programs around the world. I completely agree. And I think what's incredibly novel is including the lived experience of families. That was really Dr. Roxanne Rockwell's baby and brainchild to how can we take parents who've just been through this really excruciating journey with their kids and made it through to the other side. How can we invite them back into the clinic and be there for parents who are at the beginning of their journey? Um, and so I I mean, there might have been parents being included before, but I really think it might have been the first place where parental lived experience and family lived experience was really brought into treatment instead of just patient lived experience. I think it's so important because so often we have we have that patient lived experience. What about sibling lived experience? What about parents and carers lived experience? It's just as valuable. I completely agree. And on this line about it must work instead of just feeling good, I think about this all the time with the comparison between, I don't know, physical health and mental health. So if we went to our dermatologist with a rash on our arm and they gave us a cream and the cream didn't work, we would say, oh, that treatment was ineffective. You know, dermatologist uses a different cream. And if they still can't figure it out, we might go to a whole different dermatologist and get a second opinion. Strangely, in mental health, we actually can malign families and patients who get second opinions. It's difficult, right? And then on top of that, when someone doesn't recover from PTSD, from an eating disorder, from substance use disorder, we say things like they weren't ready for treatment. They weren't motivated for treatment. And I think that's why we often see people going back to the exact same treatment center again and again and again every time they relapse instead of recognizing that it wasn't their fault that the rash didn't go away or the PTSD didn't go away. It was they weren't actually provided evidence-based treatment for what they're struggling with. And what makes me so fearful, and there's been so many great things about the rise of virtual telehealth, about having more people have access to treatment. But I get nervous that there is definitely a cost of people having access to bad treatment. Because if you get treated for PTSD and you don't get better, you don't blame the provider, you blame yourself. And then you think, I'm broken. I'm not fixable. And you become hopeless. And there's a part of me that would, I I think it'd almost be better to have no treatment than to have bad treatment where you think you're permanently broken. When in reality, they just gave you, you know, eclectic treatment for PTSD instead of any of the treatments that we know work. It's so, so important and people get so disillusioned and and end up feeling so hopeless. Uh, It breaks my heart, the stories that I hear as a coach around that. And it's often, often I'm sitting there going, please keep trying. There will be someone out there. Find that therapist, that, that clinician that you click with and that's got the right strategies and tools and therapeutic approach for you because there will be that out there. Yeah. And also like make goals with them. Some people will tell me like, oh, my therapy is going great. And I'll be like, wonderful. How do you know that it's going great? And they're like, well, I don't know. I'm like, are you spending more time with your friends? Are you back in soccer? Are you like, so, so how do you know that it's going great? Instead of just, oh, it felt great to talk to them for 30 minutes or 50 minutes. I also want to know that your life outside of the therapy session is getting better. Mm, mm. Now, we all know how essential research is in the eating disorder space. The UC San Diego Eating Disorder Center is widely considered to be at the forefront of eating disorder research worldwide. Can you please share with our listeners some of the research initiatives you were involved in there and the impact that that research has had? Oh, boy. I mean, UC San Diego is also prolific in putting out research and always did an outstanding job of always investing in their research team. So often at most American universities, and I think this is how it is elsewhere, that you either have like a research team, and I'm like gesturing to the right here, and then you have your clinical treatment team 
gesturing to the left. And they're completely separate. Sometimes they're even housed in different departments. You might have like the eating disorder research is in the Department of Psychiatry and then the eating disorder treatments in the Department of Pediatrics, for instance. So it's pretty unique the way in which Dr. K and the team structured this really synergistic research and treatment program. I think the research that I enjoyed the most, and I think while not instrumental at all in creating this research, I really like to help disseminate it and help people understand it, was the research and how the brain is wired to maybe have an eating disorder and how the way in which people approach risk and reward is different in people who have eating disorders or even if they've long recovered based on how the brain is wired. Dr. K had this wonderful, wonderful analogy that I say over and over again, reminding us that our human brains are mammalian brains, very similar to like a bunny rabbit. And like all mammalian brains, our brain doesn't care if we're happy. Our brain cares that we are alive to pass on our genetics to our offspring and our genes to our offspring. And if you were a bunny and you're hanging out in your warm, cozy little bunny hole and you got hungry, then the reward center of your brain will start firing. You'd be motivated to go find some carrots. And if you're running around the field, carrot, 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 and you all of a sudden see a fox, then that reward circuitry should stop. And you should have your consequent circuitry start firing to say, oh, no, there's a fox. I need to want to stay alive more than I need to want to go find a carrot. And so you run back to your bunny hole. And then what happens in some people with anorexia is that fear of being eaten by the fox becomes so great that you never leave your bunny hole and you starve to death in the bunny hole. And so what you need is to have both the risk and the reward circuitry firing in parallel and at their appropriate times. And one of the things I loved about the research that was done and continues to be get done at UC San Diego is how they translate it back to the treatment that they're providing. And so one of the things that was really learned from there is that consequences just aren't as salient for kids and teens and adults with eating disorders. Parents would say to us, you know, fancy parents, like, hey, if you just, you know, gain 15 pounds, we'll buy you a car. What 17-year-old wouldn't want that? But the reward is not very salient to them. And that almost never works. I, didn't, I can't actually think of the probably thousands of kids that went through UC San Diego while I was there where anyone's really just like motivated by a reward like that. So it's wonderful that you can present to families, hey, like we have this research that really shows that it's normal for them not to be motivated by rewards. So how can we come up with what the salient consequences are to help them. And what might help is the, um, in order to return to your soccer team, you need to be steadily gaining a half a pound per week, or you need to stop purging in order to be healthy enough to play soccer. And that the consequence of not being with your team might be what's so salient as just an example. But no, I, and I, I don't know, I feel like I think I'd be publishing one paper a month over there. They're always publishing and doing some really amazing research. And, you know, I haven't been at the university now for three years. And so I need to do a better job of, of keeping track of what they are up to. But it's amazing. And I really want it to be, I hope that it becomes a blueprint for other places of making sure that research and treatment are truly synergistic. Are there any areas in particular that you think there needs to be or you would like to see more research done in? Yes. Um, so much research is done on thin white girls and so much research is done in anorexia. And yet we know that eating disorders affect boys and girls, males and females and non-binary individuals equally. We know that people of all races and ethnicities are affected by eating disorders. We also know people of all ages are affected by eating disorders. That was one of my favorite things at UC San Diego is seeing the 50, 60, and even 70-year-olds come in for treatment in a disorder where if you go to a website for treatment, you just see a lot of thin white girls, which kind of says, oh, I don't belong here if I'm not 30 years old or younger. But there's just not a lot of research done on other groups. And that's something I've been really enjoying at Equip. So we have made a research team. We are really fortunate to bring over a leading researcher from Duke who has joined our team. I think she's been with us about a year and a half now. And in addition to doing outcomes research, just making sure that equipped treatment is working and is working better and better, we started a few randomized control trials that are also looking at doing outcomes research on unique populations. So right now, I believe about... 10 to 15% of the patients that we're treating identify as trans or non-binary. And how can we get more research out there about what is the most way 
or the best way to effectively care for someone who identifies as trans or non-binary or who is in the process of transitioning or if we're introducing um, hormone replacement therapy, how can we learn more about how to best serve um, that population? Um, additionally, there's not a lot of research on people who are not underweight. So much of our research focuses on people who need to be on weight restoration, but we see people with bulimia, anorexia, ARFID, who are of um, who are at a healthy weight um, and who are not underweight, and we don't have as much research on that group of people as well. There's such scope, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so much to do. There's other. It's, we also we sat down one day with a research team and made a list of all of the things that we like know to be true just by seeing it like hundreds and thousands of times with families, but there isn't actually a paper tied mm. to it. Mm. And so we started like, okay, well, let's research it then. Let's just see if that that's actually true. You know, things that we had always assumed to be true. That's so fantastic. So, well, I look forward to seeing some of this research come out. The I'm excited. Well, I think by the time this podcast is airing, our very first outcomes paper will be out with the outcomes of the first 200 patients that we treated at Equip in 2021. Oh, that's so exciting. So on that note, what do you believe is about Equip that makes it such a game changer in the eating disorder treatment space? Tell me a little bit about it. We are very fortunate that Dr. Daniel LaGrange has been one of our advisors from the beginning. And those who don't know, he is one of the people responsible for bringing FBT from the UK, what I guess it was still called Mosley Method over to the U.S., um, working with uh, Jim Locke and at University of Chicago and now at UC San Francisco and Stanford to really do the research on FBT. So he's been one of our advisors. He has done just an, an excellent job of helping us. And one of the things we were just talking about with him is how he's always wanted to take FBT out of the ivory towers, out of academia, and into all communities and had struggled to figure out what is the most effective but also fastest way to do it. And I think that's one of the top reasons why Equip has been a game changer is that we are now serving people in all 50 states in the U.S., 51 if you include D.C., and have been have trained, I think, over 100 providers now in how to provide evidence-based treatment for eating disorders. So I think that's kind of one of the biggest ways that it's a game changer is how do you take evidence-based treatment and train a large number of people in it effectively. I think the next thing, though, is remembering that we are not pure SBT. And we talk about this a lot with Daniel and, and something that he fully supports is that, you know, if you have someone with just anorexia and they have just the perfect, um, maybe just other eating disorders, but mainly anorexia and just the perfect conditions, there's no other stressors going on in the family then maybe you can follow by the book SVT. But most people are going to need to add to it, to modify it, to deliver it in, in slightly different ways and just really keep the bones of it, the core foundation of separating the illness from the person who is ill, making sure you're focused on the physical health in addition to the mental health and focusing on weight restoration and bringing the healthy people that surround the person to the table to help them recover. So how do we keep those foundational things, but modify it to meet the needs of the people that we are serving? So I think those are a few of the things. Being in the United States and not in Australia, we definitely have a problem with financial access to treatment. I think that's kind of maybe the last way it has been a game changer is that most people can use their, what we call here in the States, in-network benefits in order to have their insurance company pay for treatment um, in all 51 states. So now in 2019, before COVID-19 was even on our radar, together with Christina Safran, who's also, there's an episode for those listeners out there who haven't already found it, there's also an episode with Christina on this season, you developed the first collaborative care, 100% telehealth eating disorder treatment, Equip. I interviewed Christina earlier this season, so we won't go into too much detail about Equip as listeners can refer back to that episode, but I'm interested to know what the driving force was behind your decision to lead UC San Diego and join forces with Christina on Equip. Yeah, leaving UC San Diego is probably one of the hardest decisions I ever made. I loved working there. I loved my job. I loved my colleagues. I loved the people that we served. And I think the biggest driving force behind it is Every single day, I was confronted with all the people we could not help. So the way that our insurance system works here in the U.S. is that if you don't have commercial insurance, the insurance that's provided by the government called Medicaid 
And we were able to help people who had San Diego County Medicaid, so basically people who lived within, I don't know, 50 miles of the eating disorder center who had Medicaid, we could help. But there were plenty of people who lived 51 miles or 54 miles, and we couldn't help them. And the area in particular that I was responsible for at UC San Diego was the admissions team. And watching the admissions team is, is still, almost everyone is still there. It's really wonderful, big-hearted people. And they would be emotionally exhausted having to say, no, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, no, I'm sorry, to people who were utilizing Medicaid, our, our government-funded insurance plan, but not San Diego County. And that was absolutely devastating. People would call us from that were utilizing Medicaid from all 50 states. And so people were, we had to say no all the time. And so I'm like, wait, how can we make sure that more people have access to this treatment? And it wasn't something that UC San Diego was going to be able to solve, like just because of the laws, the way that they were, they weren't going to be able to accept Medicaid for for different counties or different states. Really, I think it's actually impossible to think of how they could have figured out how to accept different states' Medicaid. Um, it's just not the way the laws in the U.S. are, are set up. And so I knew that if I wanted to help the lowest income Americans, also Americans who are in the military and utilizing TRICARE benefit, that wasn't going to happen through an academic institution. It was going to have to be in a for-profit space. So ultimately, that was what led me to really make the jump is how could I help someone in Alabama with Medicaid? How could I help someone in Michigan with Medicaid? And the answer was going to be through forming a for-profit that existed in all 50 states. What you guys have done is is truly incredible. I'm I'm so incredibly proud of you. And you pride yourselves on the fact that more than 60% of the company has lived experience of recovering from an eating disorder or helping a loved one heal. Why do you believe that lived experience is so important? Yes, and I really like to point out to people that this lived experience isn't just with our peer mentors and family mentors. I think sometimes people think like, oh, okay, so your peer mentors, the peer mentors are people who have lived experience and every patient who joins us gets assigned a peer mentor. Same thing with a family mentor, like, oh, of course they have lived experience. Well, we have lived experience in our product team, our engineering team, our rev cycle management team, our ops team. And we think it's a really important that there's lived experience in all areas of the company so that when our tech and product team are designing tools for the patients, they, they know who they're designing for. And that our operations team who are figuring out you know, what is a patient journey like through Equip, they know what it's like to be there. So we really do have, a, have lived experience everywhere. The reason we think lived experience is so important and it needs to be paired in our minds also with clinical expertise and, and research experience is because N of one can both be so powerful and it can be so dangerous, right? If you only have lived experience, if I only treated everyone with an eating disorder, be like, this is exactly what worked for me, so it should work for you, that wouldn't work. But we think that lived experience works really well when it is 60% of the company. So we all have different stories to tell. We have some people who recovered in poverty. We have some people who recovered in large bodies. We have some people who um, recovered in our mail. And they each bring their special voices and vision to Equip. And Christina and I like to say that we had a dream about what we wanted to do with Equip. This dream is now so much bigger because we have 200 employees who are all dreaming with us. And a lot of people informed by their lived experience causes these dreams to be so much richer. Oh, it gives me goosebumps. I just can't wait for it to come to Australia and New Zealand. <laughs> well, we are excited about that too. I'm also really glad we're talking now because it's, it's interesting. It's almost been, actually, yeah, it's been three years since I I told Dr. Walt Kay that I was going to be leaving UC San Diego, which was by far one of the hardest days of my life. I actually, I'm someone who gets anxious. And so like, I'm anxious on just a normal day when I don't have to have any hard conversations. So I was definitely anxious having that conversation with Dr. K. I mean, if we'd had this conversation three years ago, I'm like, what was I doing? What was I thinking? It was scary. It was a really, really scary leap to go from something that was a sure thing. And working at the university was wonderful. And it was also like safe and steady. And it's really fun getting to talk to you three years later when we've gotten through the like, wait, what are we doing? Like, how do we, can we really do this? And we have, it's going really well. When I was talking to Christina, I was remembering we had lunch at Del Mar when I was over there and we were talking about the different things that we were working on. And she said to me, oh, there's something else that I'm working on. I can't quite tell you yet, but you'll really like it. And that was Equip. You know, little did I know, we sat down there and I was like, oh, this is exciting. She was like, I'll tell you when I can. But that was... I'm so proud of her. Because she is 
so bad at keeping secrets. Like we joke that Christina is transparent to a fault. So every time I hear someone say that they're like, oh, she told me she was working on something, but wouldn't tell me what. I'm like, way to go, Christina, because that is definitely not her strength. I was surprised. I was surprised. But I, yeah, again, I'm proud of her. And it was it was so amazing to then see, see it all unfold. Now, the huge impact that COVID-19 has had on those affected by eating disorders is absolutely undeniable around the world. In your work, what have you recognized as being the most significant effects? Yeah, I think maybe kind of threefold. The first is the isolation. We get so much of our joy from being with other people and the relationships we have with other people. And that could be a relationship with a student and teacher. It can be a relationship with a kid and someone else on their soccer team. But those moments of interaction, like that's, that's why we all wanted to recover from our eating disorder. It's to enjoy the joy of life. And so much of the joy of life was taken from people during COVID-19. And so I think for anybody who already had like the beginning inklings of an eating disorder or just the possibility that they could develop one, I think they were more likely to. It was like a, it was like adding lots and lots of kindling to a fire having COVID-19. I think another reason, um, while social media doesn't in and of itself cause eating disorders, in my opinion, certainly doesn't help. And we know that the amount of time people were spending on social media, understandably for myself too, ex- exponentially increased during COVID-19 because of the isolation. Um, And I kind of think the last thing is eating disorders for most people, they provide some good for them as well, right? They're not all bad. If they were all bad, I think more, it might be a little easier to get rid of them. But so many people that I've talked to have said that like, hey, when I feel really anxious, not eating makes me feel better. Or when I feel really, really angry and I want to just scream, vomiting actually helps to numb me out. So, so many eating disorder behaviors help people to manage their emotions. Now, they're not effective in the long term, but they're really effective in the short term. And so COVID-19, in my opinion, brought so many stressors, so many reasons to feel scared and angry and sad and frustrated and left out. And you could lean on eating disorder behaviors to help you feel better. And for people with eating disorders, they leaned on those eating disorder behaviors. For people who maybe just had disordered eating and hadn't turned into a full-fledged eating disorder, COVID-19 was the perfect storm, setting them up to develop an eating disorder. We've got years of sort of cleanup work, for want of a better word, to do with it's concerned. It's just, it really yeah. is, I mean, we're talking about it in Australia over here as an eating disorder epidemic, and I... I, I witness that every single day with the amount of inquiries that we get through, not only through Indeed, but also my private practice. It's it's crazy. It really is. Yeah, frightening. And I think none of us were expecting COVID-19. We were definitely not prepared. But I like what you said about, you know, the reality that eating disorders serve a purpose in some way. They are meeting some needs. And one of the biggest things in recovery, obviously, is figuring out how do we get those needs met in other ways that are not life-threatening. Yes, yes. And and that don't have such big consequences. I mean, this came up with my child. So my child struggled with rumination disorder many years ago. So that's a very under-talked about eating disorder. But basically, when you regurgitate food and you play with it in your mouth and then you swallow it. And I remember when he told me about it, and he's like, you know, is that bad? And I'm like, I mean, <laughs> it's not good. Um, but so one of the things I told him about is I'm like, well, there's some people who when and he did it when he was really stressed out. I'm like, you know, there's some people who, when they're really stressed out, they, they cut themselves. It's like, oh my gosh, that's awful. And I'm like, it's, it's no more awful than all sorts of other things that people do. And like what it is, is it's just not effective in the long term. And how can we find things that can soothe whatever emotion you're experiencing that isn't going to have some of the long-term consequences. And I think a big part of it starts with removing the shame from the maladaptive behaviors, from the, from the eating disorder behaviors, and just normalizing, like, of course you're going to that, but what else can you go to instead? Mm, definitely. Big part of coaching. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and it's a big part of our peer mentors as well is just kind of like normalizing and, and I mean, as humans, we always kind of assume that our experience is unique. And there's something really validating about knowing like, no, I also was an adult who threw tantrums. I also was someone who pulled up my hair. I also was someone who vomited even when I logically knew that I shouldn't. And I'd made it three weeks without vomiting, right? Like, And so it's really nice to be like, oh, wait, other people have struggled in the same ways. 
And I think that's one of the reasons equipped virtual treatment can be so helpful to people is that you don't know when you're going to have the urge to engage in these behaviors. And so the ability to reach out and say, I'm having an urge right now. Can you help me use a skill? has been really helpful because it's pretty easy to not engage in eating disorder behaviors for 50 minutes while you're in a session with your coach or your therapist. Like you're going to kind of try to put on your best self. What's harder is the other 23 hours of the day or seven days of the week. Oh, it's the in the moment stuff that is the that is the the magic right there is being able to actually mm-hmm. address those issues in the moment when all the emotions are heightened and you are able to nip it in the bud and go, right, no, remember this is what we're doing until those neural pathways change and it becomes automatic. Yes, yes. And I think this is where our peer mentors were like coaches are are so important because there's this authenticity of I felt that extreme emotion too. I know how awkward it feels to try to use the skill until it finally doesn't feel awkward anymore. Mm -hmm. And I I think there's been a a little bit or maybe a lot of gatekeeping in mental health that only certain people with certain degrees are allowed to teach or do certain things. And that's something we're really trying to kind of turn on its head at Equip. No, like there's really nothing that says that a coach or a peer mentor can't teach skills. And who's to say it's not more effective Um, And so really kind of rethinking what is the help that people need and when and who's best equipped to do it. What do you hold hope for in the future of eating disorder treatment? Okay. One huge thing that I hold out hope for is improving the ways in which we fund treatment here in the U.S., continuing to separate out how we pay in the U.S. right now, we pay for behavioral health treatment and it's like a separate bucket of money than how we pay for physical health treatment. And would really like us to go back to recognizing that you have no health without mental health. We don't need to have these two buckets like, oh, no, we pay for that in mental health. And oh, we pay for that in physical health. Um, In the States, it's been really difficult for people because uh, like a dietitian, for instance, that gets paid out of the physical health bucket. A therapist gets paid out of a mental health bucket. An adolescent medicine attending who's or adolescent medicine physician is really essential in the treatment of eating disorders. Oh, that gets paid out of physical health. A psychiatrist who prescribes the medication, that gets paid out of behavioral health. And so this has been something that's very hard over here in America is the the separate pots, the very siloed funds of money and pathways to get treatment covered. So that's kind of a legislative hope that I have. I certainly have similar legislative hopes when it comes around licensure in the United States. We have a lot of state licensure laws that are designed to both bring the state's money, because first and foremost, they're money makers for the state, and they're designed to protect the profession, not protect patients. So for example, if you are licensed in California and you're treating a kiddo in California, and then they go to Colorado, which isn't that far away from California, for a one-week vacation and they need help, technically what you're supposed to do is say like, okay, you'll have to find a therapist in Colorado. I can't help you while you're in Colorado because my license is in California. It's asinine. So there's a, a lot of legislative things that I hope for. I think my next kind of bucket of hope has to do with helping our entire world culture change who they think of when they think of an eating disorder. By only thinking of thin white women and often thin white cis pets, women mm-hmm. and often often affluent women, that has, in my mind, allowed it to stay an illness of vanity in people's minds. It's why we get the least amount of philanthropic dollars go to eating disorders. Dr. Cindy Bulich did an outstanding paper showing that the least number of not only research dollars, but also pages in academic journals. So if you wanted to write a research study on an eating disorder, you are less likely to get that published than if you wrote a research study on depression or on any other illness. So we, our bias against eating disorders, I think really comes from us thinking of it as a thin, young, white, rich vanity issue, female vanity issue. And if we can change people's perceptions of who has eating disorders, maybe we could also eliminate some of these other barriers to causing some real lasting positive effects in the world. Yeah, wow, there's some real legislative change that needs to happen. (laughs) Yeah. You guys definitely do too. I will never forget yeah. sitting at Montanito in a staff meeting when I had a client over there and the discussions around, oh, well, yes, she has to go because the insurance has been cut, so she'll have to go today. And I am sitting there just absolutely like shocked beyond belief 
what do you mean? When they they explained to me, well, we, we have no warning. Insurance just got cut, so she'll have to go. And I'm thinking, how does this work for someone's recovery? <laughs> it's been interesting because Equip has partnered with payers. And I, when we first said that, people were like, whoa, like, what do you mean partnered with payers? And payers are the devil. And, and what it really meant is that we just spent an insane amount of time, years, educating them on eating disorders. And so when people join Equip, they get covered for at least a year of treatment with us so that that doesn't keep happening. But I will say that it, I think this is one of the things Christina and I did in a, in a unique way is that we have been villainizing the payers and a little bit, rightly so, because things like that would happen. But for the payers, it's a larger systemic issue. It's not just that one payer. There's so many laws that govern how these pay, how payers work. So it's been wonderful working with the payers to say, hey, this is backwards and this doesn't make sense. And this gets in the way of somebody having full and lasting recovery having them say like, okay, I understand that makes sense. And the fact that patients get to stay with us for at least a year and don't have to keep changing treatment teams, their families don't need to worry about, okay, great, insurance covers up for three months, but then I'm going to be stuck with the bill and they don't have to worry about that at Equip. And still a very long way to go. Mm, but that is such a relief. At least you know that you've got that year. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? I think one is to learn, take the time to examine your own internalized fat phobia. So many people have good intentions, but are constantly doing or saying triggering things. And oftentimes when someone who's going through recovery tries to tell you that you're being triggering, it's kind of normal to respond with defensiveness. So it can be wonderful if the first thing you can do is take the time to educate yourself. And it's never been easier in many ways because there are so many podcasts like yours, Millie, and resources online and on social media where you can get to know the variety of people who have eating disorders and what their needs are. So definitely educate themselves and work on their own internalized fat phobia. You know, we we have a group that our parents do at Equip to challenge their own fat phobia and to help their own body image in order to help their kids because we understandably see lots of like well, you know, you are recovering from an eating disorder, so you have to eat those things, but I'm going to stay on a diet and continue to try to lose weight, or I'm going to continue to, I'm not making, I'm not saying anything negative about your body as you go through recovery, but I can still say negative things about my own body. And it's like, well, no, there's, there's lots of ways in which you are supporting and fueling eating disorder by doing that. And I watch parents leave that group in many ways healed. It doesn't just help their child to challenge their own internalized fat phobia, but it, they also get to heal and start being kinder to themselves and improve their own. So I think that's a huge thing. I think another is to keep the focus on what's essential and to not stop until you reach the end. We watch a lot of loved ones, family members who, who champion good enough you're 90% weight restored, or you're only vomiting once a week. And it's really worth it to get all the way to full recovery. And so have that be the goal and help um, help the person that you care about who has an eating disorder get there. And then I think lastly, and this is more kind of to people who are like, I think my friend, I think my colleague, you know, that's someone I'm super close with might have an eating disorder is to approach them and make it not be about what they look like, but more about their behaviors and also about their joy. Like, hey, you know, whenever I talk to you, it seems like your brain is really monopolized by thoughts about food or monopolized by thoughts about your body. And, you know, because of my sister or my brother or this friend I had in school, like I know a little bit about eating disorders and I'm wondering if you know, maybe you're struggling to think about other things and if there's any way that I can help you. So make it about something other than their body. Mm, all such valuable salient advice. Thank you for sharing that. Finally, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our listeners with, especially those who are still fighting the brave fight? For those that are still fighting, really remembering that full, complete recovery is possible and it really is worth fighting for. I think a lot of people get stuck at that 95% recovered, whatever that means. I have very little physical activity, so but I still like compare it to like climbing a mountain or going on a marathon. Like I get it. Like I've gone far enough. Let's sit down. So it makes sense that you have that urge, but it's going to make it harder for you in the long run if you don't just finish it. You are so close. So keep going. Full recovery is possible and it's really worth it. 
My other big piece of advice, though, is invest in something outside of the eating disorder. I think a lot of us are, are guilty of this, but, you know, you, you follow a lot of accounts on social media of people who are working on their recovery, and you go to, like, recovery walks, and you are an advocate in the space. All of that's great, but we're trying to free your brain from thinking about food in your body all the time. So it's really hard if you're then, as your job or as your hobbies, thinking about it. So find another thing. You can still have it, but like maybe it's interior design or it's knitting or it's a relationship or it's school or it's soccer or joining like an adult kickball team. But find other things that are fun to think about and that you enjoy doing. And don't wait until you're 100% recovered to do it. Start getting joy in your life now and building a life worth living. I love that. The power of joy. It is. It's so, so important because you can just very much get so tunnel visioned and so saturated with eating disorder content. And it can be really positive recovery focused stuff, but it's still eating disorder content. Yes. And I've talked to some people who are working on the recovery and like, oh, you know, reading any good books and all the books are about like body image and self-help and loving themselves and and then like any good podcast and it's all about eating and you should keep listening to Millie's podcast and like, I'm like, go read, you know, go read like a trash novel or go, you know, watch, watch Stranger Things on Netflix. Like you, you, you don't have to only be thinking about this. Yeah, it's really, really important because it's a reminder of the big wide world that's out there that's waiting for you on the other side of this battle. Thank you so much for joining me. I have loved our chat and I'm so grateful for you and all the amazing work that you're doing in the eating disorder space. Well, thank you so much, Millie, for having me. Hopefully the next time we see each other is in person, maybe in summer in Australia and and hopefully we can get equipped to, uh, to your neck of the woods soon. I cannot wait for that. Thank you so much for having me. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? You get to that point where you just, you just don't know what to do. There is hope at ended.org.au.